conversation. Arts beat. Arts beat. Arts beat. Art beat conversation. My name is Miyuki Baker. I'm a mixed race artist, activist, explorer, and I have been identifying as a, a nomadic artist these days because for the past three years I haven't had a home base other than my body and I am also a very active zinester and for the past two years I've been making zines about queer art and activism and um, yeah I that's the general gist of what I do. <laughs> cool. So tell tell me about zines. What is that for people who have never been um, introduced to it? Yeah, so a zine is a self-published magazine. It's often black and white and um, usually half size, so folding an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper in half. Um, and it's often um, covering topics that aren't talked about in the mainstream media and covering identities that are marginalized, typically. So there's a lot of zines in the anarchist movement. There's a lot of zines in the queer communities. And yeah, they're really great because they um, are not pretentious and they are cheap to print and they can be distributed really easily. Cool, so what, what's your involvement in that kind of, like what are, what are you doing? Is it your creation completely? Well, so while I was, I, okay, I'll backtrack a little bit. So for 14 months, um, from 2012 to 2013, I traveled around the world, and I was staying with different queer and trans communities, um, trying to meet as many artists and activists as possible, and I wanted to feature them in these zines so that I could, first of all, catalog what all I was encountering, but also um, feature people so that other folks around the world who didn't get to travel or just wanted to know about what was happening in different countries could learn. And so it turned out to be more of like a collage zine rather than so much my input and like my thoughts on everything. Um, that also had to do with probably the fact that I had my laptop stolen early on and I was just making these zines in like three-day pockets every time I'd moved to a new country. And so it was just like collecting things, telling everyone to email me their work and putting them together. And um, yeah, so my zines these days look pretty different because I have access to my own computer and like a Xerox machine, but um, yeah. That, that's my involvement. <laughs> <laughs> Dang. Okay, so let's back up a second. Traveling all around the world, how, how did you get that opportunity afforded to you? It seems like such a rare and beautiful thing. It really was, yeah. Um, so it was a fellowship called the Thomas J. Watson Fellowship, and it's actually the founder of IBM. It's his legacy, I guess. So his wife created the, the fund and it, it supports 40 students each year um, who go to colleges and universities in the U.S. and they have to go to at least three countries with a project that they're passionate about and they give you, now they give them like $30,000. Um, for me they gave me 25000 I guess because inflation hadn't happened or something. <laughs> I was like, damn it, those extra five grand. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I initially had some project about like wanting to look at where my art supplies were made and like wanting to learn how to make those art supplies. But then I was like, no, like what do I do whenever I go to a new place? I look for queer artists and activists. Like I just need to do this. Um, and so that turned out to be an amazing experience for me. And um, I lengthened the trip by two months because I was like, I just want to be out there as much as I can. What was the reception from the um, queer artists and activist communities that you um, immersed yourself in? I think overall, really positive. Uh, people were really excited. Um, the first big city that I visited uh, was Quito, Ecuador. And everyone was so welcoming. 
my, I, I actually came up with a performance piece during my first month there because they were like, oh, we need a performance. You know, like, can you do one? And it was just very collaborative. It was exactly what I envisioned, you know, it was like me interacting with local folks and getting to be good friends with them. And it was just awesome. And, um, but I, there were, of course, places where it was harder, um, where, for example, in like Buenos Aires, there were so many gay tourists there already. And so like the local queer artists and activists were just tired of it. They're like, oh, you need to prove yourself. Like, who are you? What, what do you want? You know? <laughs> so that was crazy. a bit harder. But in most places, I would say, like 95% of the time, it was like a phenomenal experience. And, how do you prove yourself? Uh, like, like <laughs> to give me an example. Of well, how. having the zine project was really helpful because it wasn't that I was just asking people to talk with me. I was also wanting to highlight them in a publication. And in the beginning, they might not know that it's just this little dinky <laughs> DIY zine that I'm making. I mean, ultimately, I posted it online and um, lots of folks got to see it. So that was exciting. But that helped a lot, you know, just like going up to random strangers and being like, would you like to be a part of my zine project? And I also did performances in different places and it's kind of a way to give back and just show my humanness and my realness, you know, just to show them that I wasn't there to try to abuse the relationship, that I, that I wanted to just make friends and then through that maybe make some art. that you've made that you are in contact with today from that project? Absolutely. Oh, totally. Yeah. And it's such a dilemma because in college I was already friends with so many international students who like scattered around the world as soon as we graduated. And then now I've been to 15 countries on that trip and I have dear, dear friends in a lot of those places. And it's, it's really difficult to deal with that. What's your like home life like growing up were you always on the move like how do you have such a um a fluid spirit to be able to just go go all these different places hmm well I was born and raised in the Boston area and my mom is an immigrant from Japan and so I suppose it was in her blood <laughs> too and my dad was a naval officer so he was like going around the world as well. And then growing up, we didn't actually move that much, although every year my mom and I, and sometimes my dad, we would go to Japan and visit my mom's relatives. And then when I was 13, my mom saw this program on Japanese TV about this commune in the <laughs> middle of the woods in Japan. And she was like, Yuki, do you want to do that? I was like, okay. <laughs> um, and so I went to this place without my parents and lived with 15 other kids and like four adults who took care of us and like cooked and cleaned, um, took care of animals, like learned traditional crafts and, you know, went hiking on the weekends and stuff like that. And that was probably the first time that I felt like I had left my bubble. You know, even though I was going to Japan every year before then, my relatives would just spoil me rotten, you know? And this is the first time where I had to come face-to-face -face with who I was. Like, was I Japanese? Was I American? How was I going to interact with these kids? I'm an only child, so that was my first experience living with so many other people my age. And, um, yeah, it was such a great experience in just learning to adapt in a completely new space and having to compromise. And so I suppose since then, yeah, I've been... I mean, we moved... When I got back, my parents decided they wanted to have more land, and so they moved to rural Pennsylvania. So that was another culture shock. I grew up in a really, really diverse, politically correct type of neighborhood outside of Boston. And then suddenly I was in, like, farmer's land. And then on top of that, there were a lot of, like, New Yorkers and New Jersey folk that were moving to, like, have their American dream home. And so 
it was such a yeah like that that even though it was within the US that was almost just as big as going to Japan so yeah I mean ever since and I've, I've just been traveling a lot like do you find do you find that you have to explain yourself a lot um, and like kind of um, I guess stand up for yourself and who you are uh, being like of many different cultures and like your gender affiliations and all that like how do you how do you deal with all of that hmm well in most of my bios I like to write that I'm a resident of the place where circles intersect and overlap and so it's not that I say that out loud to every person that questions me <laughs> that'd be really awkward <laughs> um, but I guess you know, it's funny. I think that when people see me, they don't necessarily assume that I come from a lot of different places. Even though I do come from a mixed-race background, I think I look more like my Japanese mom. And even though I play with gender, I think that I just pass as feminine, female. And even though I think that I look pretty queer, most people might just assume that I'm straight, you know? So there are these layers and there's so much that people assume about me, and then the more they find out, the more they're like, oh, okay, that is just another layer of you, you know? And, and I think when people are confused, it's just a matter of time, you know, that I, I just share some more stories, and, and they realize that it's not, you know, all that it, it appears to be on the surface. So as far as like identifying as queer and writing this zine, what what kind of stuff has it brought out to you in figuring out who you are as an artist? Like, how has it helped to, you to progress as an artist and as a queer person, as a queer right. artist? Yeah, I think that a lot has changed since I started making those zines because, first of all, I'm a mixed media artist. I love to use whatever I can get my hands on, whatever is free, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and I love adjusting the medium based on what my goal is and who my audience is and like I said what is just available and so visiting all these artists and activists and seeing how they came to their decision about what medium to choose and what they were passionate about and how they were able to express their queer identities through that medium that was such an informative lesson over and over and over again and because I was asking those questions to people it was deeply, deeply educational for me as an artist. And then in terms of my queer identity, um, I think I sent you the link of my old website, which is still active-ish, mm -hmm. Asian, gay, and proud. And that came out of a place where I really wanted to see more representation of queer-identified Asian people in the media or, like, online. Um, and that was a very, I think, more black-and-white view of how I should be queer and you know I have a section for like coming out and I would ask these people like so what does it mean for you to be gay in Asia you know like I would ask these really kind of like it's is it really just about their identities or is it about their work and like their experiences growing up and do you know what I mean so um yeah when totally. I yeah like one incident that I really remember clearly, was when I was in New Delhi, and I met this incredible queer activist there um, whose writing is in the India zine, um, Aryan, and he was asking me, like, what are we coming out into? Mm. You know, and, like, there's this conversation constantly, like, oh, have you come out? Oh, like, when are you going to come out to your parents? Or, like, there's just always this discussion, and I was always really obsessed with that, too. And when he started challenging me in that and saying like that by doing that we're essentially telling people that haven't come out that they're not as enlightened 
And that's really messed up, you know, and that that binary is not healthy and that a lot of people are perfectly happy and leading really meaningful lives with incredible relationships with the people around them. And they might not have come out, quote unquote, but, yeah, they're, totally. but they're living their, their lives and, and they don't need to come out, you know? And so that, that was a really big moment in that trip. Another story from India is where in Kerala, the men wear um, what's called a lungi, and it's a big piece of fabric that they wrap around their lower half of their bodies to make a kind of skirt. Um, but they wear it and wrap it in a certain way, and they like walk, you know, in this masculine macho way in these lungi. And, um, you know, so they're wearing these skirts down the streets because it's so hot down there, right? And so I remember wanting to wear that and, like, tap down the streets and, and do that. And, like, I recognize now what, a, like, I don't know, how, how problematic that was or, you know, if, if my friends were just, like, putting up with it because they were like, oh, silly foreigner. But um, I was living with a bunch of Carolyn artists younger artists at the time in a gallery and like 12 of them were guys and two of them were women but this one woman who's a painter she was like queer and super um, awesome and like knew how to wrap this lungi and so she like taught me how to wear it and so I started wearing it around the gallery and like the guys there were like super open so they were just like oh cool yeah and, like this is how you walk and this is how you do it and, but I was like oh I'm gonna try walking outside in the street and like I was in this um, it's not a small town, but it's pretty small compared to most Indians. And like, there's just one main road where you can walk, walk down and people are kind of loitering and like sitting around. And there are always these guys, there were these guys that would just sit there and like be walk, you know, talking and like hanging out. And I remember walking past them and it was this really chilling moment where I was just like, oh my God, I'm totally being watched, you know, like every single mannerism, motion, everything that I'm doing is just being stared at right now. And I felt my lungi kind of like slipping too. And then I realized like I'm wearing a white lungi and I don't have like boxers underneath. Like I'm just wearing <laughs> underwear. Like it was like all this stuff. And I was, I was freaking out a little bit. And, um, but I just kept walking and I, I realized, you know, I was just, when I was in these different places, I felt my gender so differently, you know, and like in South America, for example, people would always be like, chinita, chinita, you know, like blah, blah, blah. They would be catcalling all the time, but calling me a Chinese woman and, wow. um, and just feeling the way that in different places, my race and gender were conflated or some, some places not at all. And, you know, just like finding that moving from place to place so rapidly was a good way of finding out, you know, what stuck, what was, what was at the core of it all, and, like, how each place would perceive me in a different way, and therefore force me to question what is really true about my gender, mm. if everyone's perception was so different. Yeah, and allow you to play around with that, too, probably, huh? Yeah, I mean, and, and I suppose that's a, another privilege, too, as a traveler, as an outsider, as a foreigner, it's like, oh, look at that weirdo, but they're a foreigner, like, whatever, they're all weirdos, <laughs> you know? It's like, on the one hand, that's cool, and I'm glad that I don't have as strict of a, you know, like, um, like, over, <laughs> you know, like, that people aren't, like, constantly trying to censor me, but... On the other hand, it's like, well, how about the locals? Like, how does that compare? And am I being disrespectful? Because I was able to just 
go straight into these queer communities that allowed me to then branch out when I wasn't doing that work. And it's not like I had it written all over my face, like, here to make queer zines, you know? <laughs> it's not like everyone on the streets knew that that was my purpose, you know? So, like, I loved taking cooking classes or, you know, take language classes. And so it wasn't always on the forefront. It was definitely a primary lens through which I learned about a country, mm. but definitely not the only one. Yeah. So what, yeah. A, what other kind of things um, are you playing around with right now, artistic-wise? Like, what, what's your process right now as an artist? So I was just telling a friend that I've been having this identity crisis in that while I am, I've been able to identify as an artist for, you know, a long time, but there always has to be a disclaimer that I'm also an activist, like right away, and that I can't separate those two identities. Hmm. And that um, the connotation of an artist is that I need to be making money through this like traditional, uh, for me, this is for me, my connotation is that if I'm like a, you know, fine artist, quote unquote, then I'm showing in these galleries and I'm selling my art at high commission rates and like, um, I think that what I've been struggling with is how do I ethically sell my art when I have such a problem with these big galleries and when I have such a problem with like the commercialism, you know, and capitalism and all these isms. <laughs> yeah. Have you and had a bad experience with galleries or is this just from no, your... No, not necessarily, but I don't agree with the way that great art often ends up in the hands of just the few elite mm -hmm. folks that can afford to buy them and invest in artwork and then they might put it up in their house but they might also just put it in like a storage unit and it's like what is this you know yeah. and sometimes these artists are living in poor conditions but the galleries are these pristine, white-walled places that are not accessible to most people. And obviously there are exceptions to these generalizations that I'm making, but I would say that a lot of the time what I notice is just this standoffish facade of like the gallery walls and, and the people that are um, allowed to go in and aren't allowed to go in. Mm. And it's self-selected. And so I have been struggling with that notion. And while I love making beautiful things, I also, I want to make beautiful things that are accessible to everyone and can be, you know, purchased for really cheap or for free. Hmm. And that obviously doesn't help my bank account. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's something I'm, I'm dealing with right now. And... In terms of my artistic process, though, I would say that I just let myself be moved by whatever is happening around me. Um, I was in a long-distance relationship for a while, like a binational same-sex relationship for a while, and there was um, another friend, a, a couple, that just got married, and one was Japanese and another was well, she was Swiss-Japanese and the other was American. And they got married and, like, you know, the American one was able to sponsor the Japanese-Swiss one with their same-sex marriage. What and does that so, mean, sponsor? Sponsor as in, like, the um, Japanese-Swiss one was able to get a green card okay. through the same-sex marriage. And this is after DOMA um, was overturned, right? So... All that was happening, I was hearing about this, and I was like, oh, my God, I have to make a zine about this. So that, that was kind of a natural, pro, you know, progression. Um, and let's see. Yeah, I'm just, I'm always making collages and finding new topics that interest me. And um, recently, yoga and meditation and, like, healing arts, those have been coming up in my art a lot and just finding ways of bringing that into my activist communities. And what do you, what do you mean bringing that into your activist communities? Like I know that you recently um, did a Kickstarter fund 
to fund some type of yoga. You want to talk yeah, about that? Yoga training, yeah. Yeah, was... yeah that's, that, that was a really powerful moment um, this year because I remember I was in L.A. when I made the decision to do the Indiegogo campaign, and I was like, okay, I really want to do this yoga teacher training. It costs $3,500. I'm broke. How am I going to do this? And, um, you know, I think that people are doing crowdfunding campaigns more and more, and I was also afraid that, you know, I would just be this another person that was asking for money, and I didn't want to be that. But I knew that I had a community of people out there somewhere, you know, that believed in me. And, um, yeah, I, like, made portraits and did various pieces of art in exchange for contributions. And that felt really amazing. Um, and, like, unlike the Watson Fellowship, where it was kind of this unknown entity, you know, this rich, rich donor throwing money at me. It was a community of people, like over 100 people donated. Wow. And it just felt solidly community-based. And I felt so grateful each day at the yoga teacher training, you know. And um, I'd say that a lot of activists I know burn out pretty quickly because they don't take care of themselves. You know, there's this culture of going to strikes and protests and rallies and staying up late and, and talking about these issues. And, um, and unfortunately, also, people party really hard. And these, yeah, they, they really take a toll on people's bodies and souls. And um, so I guess the way I'm trying to move my art is that I want it to come from this place of honoring each other's souls, first and foremost, um, and spirits, you know, and recognizing that we need to take care of those first before we can try to make any type of change outside of ourselves. I was born by the river In a little tent Oh, and just like the river I've been running Every since it's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. I wanted to ask you, I saw something on your um, website where you were talking about intersectionality. Can you talk totally. to me about that a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, so when we see groups that are like, oh, the Asian Organization of New York or something like that. You know, it's like, is someone only Asian? I mean, no, right? Like, there's so many identities. Like, maybe that person loves dim sum too. Maybe that person loves bowling. Like, there's so many intersections. And I've grown up in a lot of spaces where I had to come to terms with a lot of seemingly contrasting identities, um, or at least that's what society told me, and like gay and Asian, you know, and like a lot of the best moments in college were when I was um, going to meetings for like queer Asian women in Philly, and it was this beautiful space of intersectional identities. Um, and even though we had that in common, we were coming from so many different backgrounds as well. And, like, within that group, like, there were people that got along and people that didn't. And, you know, like, so many different ways of aligning. But I think that the way to make change in this world has to come from recognizing our intersectionality hmm. with each other, with everyone. Hmm. And, and how, how do you do that? I mean, do you have any advice on how you might go about doing that? Well, um, talking to strangers, <laughs> talking, to, talking to people that you wouldn't normally talk to and asking them real questions, honestly. I mean, it's pretty hard to say, oh, don't judge someone or like don't make assumptions because that's 
that's something that we have to train really, really hard, like every second of the day, not to do. So I would say, I mean, that's how I try to do it. It doesn't always work, but I really relish being able to connect with people that, from the outside, no one would have expected us to connect. It gives me pure joy to be able to do that, you know? Do you have somebody in your life that you can think of that you connect with like that? Yeah, I mean, so, like, my parents live in hunting country (laughs) in rural Pennsylvania, and I went to this harvest festival last fall, and there are all these people that do reenactment all over the world, of course, but also a lot of them live in Pennsylvania, and they're, the, like the Harvest Festival was at um, a reenactment historical farm. And um, there was this guy holding a rifle, and um, he was dressed in like 19th century clothing. And I just went over and I was asking him tons and tons of questions. Um, and turns out he makes his own rifles, and he only reads books from like the 19th century, and he, re- he like looks up blueprints from that era. And he buys, um, you know, fishing rods from the 1880s or something like that, you know, and goes fishing in canoes. And and it just, it was exciting because I was trying to tell him, I was like, wow, you know, I've been, I've been trying to like figure out what it is about the hunting culture here that rubs me the wrong way and you know your approach which is to only use what people back in the day used is really appealing and so we became good friends and the first time we went um, on a little trip together he took me fishing and we didn't catch any fish and he was laughing that it was because I didn't eat meat like I was a vegan so I like you know (laughs) The vegan gods were like, you're not going to catch any fish. And then the second time was last month, he took me to a shooting range. And so we didn't go like hunting or anything, but it was super, super cool. And like we were standing side by side with these guys with um, like really intense modern guns that do like five rounds at a time. And here we were like with this long rifle, antique rifle that he built. And we're like pouring... You know, the the gunpowder from this cow horn case that he made and shoving the the lead bullet in. It was just like it was it was great. I just I love landing in situations like that where I'm just like, what the hell? Like how did I end up here? You're so cool. This is awesome. You know? <laughs> so yeah, and he taught me how to load it and shoot it and it was a lot of fun. And I would have never expected to do that. And it's when we write emails to each other, he, he uses words like yonder. And uh, <laughs> he writes like he's from the 19th century. It's super, super fun to get emails like that. I feel like I'm traveling in time. So what kind of adventures do you have next? Do you have some big master plans or anything? I actually do. Um, I'm flying to Quito, Ecuador on the 24th. So leaving in less than two weeks. And yeah, that's just, it's an open-ended adventure. Is there a reason? Well, okay, so my ex lives there. <laughs> you going to go do some stocking or what? No, I'm going to stay with her. Just kidding. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> it did kind of sound like I was about to say that though. Um, no, so I'll be staying with her and I'm going to be taking my bike with me. And in October, we're going to do a two-week trip to the coast and back and I'm going to be working on some art projects and I'm applying to grad schools right now actually so I need to get that done by like December but then afterwards I'm 
planning, and this is all up in the air still, but my goal is to bike and bus my way up through Colombia and then into Central America and up into Guatemala, Mexico, and finally, hopefully, in the U.S. Wow. And last time, you know, I was mostly trying to focus on queer art and activism, and I'm really obsessed with textiles, and so, like, here and there, I would let myself get carried away and, like, try to learn some textile things and, like, you know, meet textile people, but I didn't really get a chance to dive in. So this time I want to see if I can apprentice with folks and um, learn some techniques and, yeah. Do you have any people lined up or know of any people or you're just going to freely try to find people to work with and encounter textile-wise? Yeah, mostly. Mostly the latter. <laughs> I know a couple of people, but um, I know from my last trip when I was going through South America that when I went to marketplaces, there would be people naturally there, you know, just selling their wares and their textiles. And there was one woman in Bolivia who totally was like, yeah, you can come back with me and learn. Like, co come back to my village and learn with me. Awesome. That's fine. You know, it was just super chill. And um, I think that opportunities will just, hopefully, yeah. <laughs> naturally. That's the plan. Yeah, well, it seems like you have a way of, like, manifesting and creating a reality that, you want and putting yourself in good situations. Can you talk about, maybe give some advice about how people might do that? Or like, it just seems like you have a clear vision and you kind of just jump off and it, it works out. Like, mm. um, I would say that I, I believe in the power of manifestation and that when I verbalize something, I've already created it. Hmm. That's it's profound. already, it's, already been made the minute you say it and the more times I repeat it to people like believe me I've told like a hundred people about this bike trip and I have never done a hardcore I, like I have not done a bike tour legit <laughs> and people are like do you have experience I'm like oh it'll, it'll work you know like I'll do some trips while I'm in Ecuador to train um, and honestly it's about creating accountability I think hmm. for yourself I mean that's how I work I know that if I tell someone that I'm going to do something, it's not all about guilt, obviously. Like, I want to do it. That's why I'm saying it out loud. But I need my friends. I need random strangers to hear me talk about it. And the more times I repeat it, there are new ways of it being manifested. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it starts to become... More, cl more clear in my mind if I describe and explain it to different people because they're going to ask me new questions, right? So yeah. I'm all about getting feedback and creating accountability for myself. It's almost like you're creating your, your ultimate truth of what you want your life to be. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't work all the time, obviously, but I, I just have to keep believing that. It's going to work. It's going to happen. And how do you deal with um, when it doesn't work, the failure? Like, what's your game plan for that? Well, I eat a lot of Nutella. <laughs> no. That was, that was this one winter. It's pretty bad. Um, <laughs> you know, I'd like to think that I just accept it and let it be and know that it wasn't meant to be. And that hopefully in not getting that, I learned something really valuable and I know more clearly what I do want to do, what I am capable of doing next. And, you know, obviously there are low moments as well. And like I was just referencing this Nutella bout, um, <laughs> it was it was a really cold winter in Chicago and I was just so down in the dumps I was like ah, like I don't feel like going outside it's so cold I don't know what I'm doing like I got back from this trip what am I doing next and um, I 
well, my, my solution was to fly to a warm place. So I was in LA for five months and um, I then went and did a Vipassana meditation retreat. Have you heard of that? Mm-mm. It's a 10-day silent retreat and Vipassana is a type of meditation in the Buddhist tradition. And um, it's basically all about becoming aware of our bodily sensations and accepting that those sensations are constantly changing and that if we can learn to not crave or have any cravings or aversions to those sensations, then we can be at peace um, because then we can apply it to the rest of our lives. So no matter what happens, it's like, mm, okay, things are going to change. I'm not going to crave it. I'm not going to, you know, hate this experience. And it's just going to change. It's going to move on. And so non-attachment, mm. you know. And I think in the past I was always like, oh, that's so cliche. Like non-attachment. Ha, that's funny, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, and then I had to be silent for 10 days and just do this over and over again. And it was very powerful. I was going through... Um, a few months where my mom wasn't talking to me Mm. and that retreat really helped me go through that. Do you go through a whole like um, wave of different emotions being silent and being with yourself for 10 days? In the beginning I think there's that but then after a while what they say which was really really powerful for me is that it's not wrong or bad at all to have mind chattering, you know, that it's completely normal. That's how our brains function. And that if we can just allow it to be there and just say, okay, I, I see that you're thinking about Korean food, but just, you know, invite, invite your, your awareness back to the breath <laughs> and it's cool. And then if it wanders again, it's like, oh, I see you wandering. Let's come back again. You know, it's like over and over again. And so after a while, that I think also being silent is such a profound experience. Any kind of sensory deprivation, I think, is highly enlightening, (laughs) um, to say the least. Yeah, totally. (laughs) I mean, we were in a beautiful part of California, and there were deer and different kinds of animals that would come out and I was just struck by their beauty and you know I'd seen so many deers before but this was such a profound um, retreat because I was everything was so much more heightened Mm. so I wouldn't say that I was going up and down up and down I just got used to like waking up early and going to bed early and being silent and sitting all day. It was just like a part of what I did then. And then everything else was so heightened, like eating food. Food tasted so good. Like I, we weren't allowed to read. We weren't allowed to write things down. And I was just like watching a plant move in the wind or something. Like it sounds so... It, <laughs> sounds, it sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was. <laughs> so that, yeah, that was a really awesome experience that has helped me. Being an artist who works in so many different mediums and like anything you can get your hands on it seems like you create with, um, how do you focus? What, What do you use? What tools and what's your process to focus? and create and finish a project? Mm. Well, I think that having a daily practice of some sort is really helpful. Um, I'd say that I haven't gotten to the point where I have a daily art practice, but I definitely have a daily yoga practice and that grounds me every day. And meditating and writing my intentions for the day and writing what I'm grateful for before I go to bed every night. Like all of these mindfulness practices help me figure out what's on my mind, first of all, and like what I want to prioritize and what my body needs. And yeah, I mean, I think that my art 
takes on a more nebulous form. I think that there are these moments where I'm extremely prolific and I'll create like, you know, I made this new zine that has 50 pages, like color collages and like written things and poems. And I did that in like less than a week. It was so intense. I was like upstairs in my parents' attic while I was at home for a few weeks. And I was just like, was always making. And then there will be moments where I don't do any of that. And I'm just like collecting stories and just living and, you know, gardening and meeting new people. What kind of advice can you give to other people in the world, um, other artists on how to stay creative, how to stay focused, and what maybe through a story, if you have a story from your travels that can inspire, um, like a life-changing moment, you know, something that was like left or right? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good question, um, the left and right, which way do you go type of moments. Um, you know, I think that my life has been a strange one in that I don't really look at my next steps in that kind of way. Like, I guess I do, I am looking at the future in this kind of like, okay, I could go to grad school or I could not or something like that. But in the past, like, we, you know, I took a gap year in the middle of college to live in Taiwan. Um, and that kind of happened because I was like, I started taking Chinese my second year of college and I felt like I wanted to catch up and so I was like I'm just gonna go over there now and like then I'll come back and I'll be you know pretty fluent or something and like there are all these things that kind of landed in my lap just situationally like it just happened that way and then in retrospect I look back and I'm like wow that was so influential or like becoming friends with that one person allowed me to enter a whole new world understand all these new things about myself and launch, you know, myself into this, this certain kind of work or, you know, so I think that advice wise, I would say, okay, so I would say that self care is so important and that having moments to be with yourself and to, be completely aware of what your body and soul needs. Like, that's the first foundational step. But I think beyond that, like, once you've taken care of yourself, being open, just being open to, like, surprises and new encounters with random people you'd never expect to be friends with. You know, going back to what I was saying earlier. Because you never know. You might fall in love with that person. You might find that their cousin um, like runs a zine shop and, and wants to invite you to talk or you don't know what these people hold. Like each person, like you saw a friend in every stranger and interacted with them in that way, I, I think it would be such a beautiful world. So I try to live by that as much as I can, you know, and, and it sometimes bites me in the butt because then I'm too friendly with everyone and then everyone thinks I'm their best friend and I'm like, I'm so, like, stressed out because I, you know, like, <laughs> I don't have all the time in the world, like, I want to do this for myself and I want to, like, yeah, I mean, it's something that I'm still trying to figure out, like, how to find a balance between being friendly, being open, meeting new people, but also not giving away too much so that there's still room for myself to like take care of myself and also a lot of space for me to appreciate the friends that are closest to me and are always there for me unconditionally. Mm. So I think I'm trying to find that balance too now that I'm teaching yoga and meditation classes and trying to do this new thing with um, radical wellness coaching sessions and seeing if I can turn it into like a, 
a small, like it's like based on donation, but it's also sustaining me so that I don't have to always feel like I'm spreading myself so thin. Mm. So explain to me what radical wellness is. Yeah, I think that, well, first of all, I, I got this idea from um, a woman that I met at the Allied Media Conference. Are you familiar with this conference? No. Oh my gosh, you have to go next summer. Okay. It happens every year in Detroit, and it's for media makers and um, change oh. agents. You are like exactly that, and you should lead a workshop. So I, I had been hearing about this conference from many people who were like, Miyuki, you have to go. And I finally decided that I would apply to be a presenter. And I did this workshop on like how to use zines to connect. Oh wait, how do you, how do you how to make zines to connect? Yeah. Um, and that was such a transformative experience because I was surrounded by all these people who were trying to use media in great ways as activists. And um, anyways, <laughs> the reason why I brought that up was because they have this awesome space called um, the Healing Justice track, and there are all kinds of healers that come and offer their skills. And one woman had a session called Radical Wellness, and that was the only free one. I wanted to sign up for something else, but it was already packed, so I like signed up for a private session with her. It was like a 30-minute one-on-one private session where she asked me to write down my current commitments, my, my hopes, and then my vision. And then like, there were, a few, there were a few activities like that that she did. And then she did a guided meditation for me and then gave me some practical advice at the end. And that blew my mind. I was like, wow, you know, like I already, like people are always calling me up for advice and asking me to look over an application or look over something and, um, or like asking me about how to like cook something or make things and I always just feel like I give out a lot of advice to people even though like I don't have a nine-to-five job like I don't have this kind of what's seen as a successful life in that sense but for whatever reason people like to ask me questions (laughs) and um, and then I got my yoga teaching certification learned how to guide meditation and I just got so excited you know I love thinking about health in new ways and how to take care of radical activist communities. And um, I just found a lot of my friends feeling burned out and exhausted and like feeling like they were drowning a bit, you know? And so I started doing these um, one-on-one sessions for free right now because I'm practicing. And uh, yeah, it's been really fun to do it. And it's, it's, you know, radical wellness being both a play on words like radical activism, radical politics, but also like that wellness, what used to be such a natural thing, us being aligned with nature, you know, wellness, it's, it's our health, it's eating the right foods that our body wants. Um, and then nowadays it's such a radical act to be well, to be healthy we have to make so many decisions. We have to refuse to buy things from corporations that make it so difficult for us to refuse them. Um, it's such a struggle. So, yeah, I, I'm really excited about this new direction. How do you help other people in your community, not even in your, like, activist community, but just in your daily life to, like, be healthier? Exactly. Exactly. Crazy without without coming across as being like this know it all that is stuck up and is like, oh, you have to buy like fair trade organic food, don't you know? Like, no, that's not what it's about. It's like we have to make the choices for ourselves, and I want to help people find self healing and self empowerment on their own. It's not about me being like, you need to do this, you need to do that. Like, it's like actually, let's meditate and. How about you listen to your own body? Have you ever thought about doing a zine about radical wellness where it's like like ways to passively and positively initiate that change within communities or something? Yeah, so, well, the zine that I just made, which I haven't published publicly yet, but I've been <laughs> giving to friends, it's called Life Right Now. Mm. And it's a zine about yoga, meditation, self-care, 
And, you know, there's sprinkles of social justice that I've put in there and, you know, like the history of Sanskrit and stuff like that. But um, that's my first step into it. And I am really excited about the next scene that I'm going to make where I interviewed a lot of the people that I um, met when I was at Kripalu at the yoga teacher training. And so I interviewed like the dining hall workers and I interviewed like some of the teachers. I interviewed some of my classmates and I really want to focus on the social justice lens next. But yeah, that's totally on my radar. Like I, I really want to make a zine that's about how to use these skills in the political work that we do or the art that we make. Um, this one that I just made is more about like just having some found like foundational skills and what kinds of you know like prompts can we use to meditate and and how can we learn about our body types more and what to put into our bodies that will be better for each of our body types and stuff like that <laughs> You mentioned that you are really sought after for giving advice. So, what advice do you have to the entire universe? Or, like, what's <laughs> one thing that you want to leave on this podcast, you know, um, that could go reach into the cracks of the world? Um, you know, anything? Um, you know, I would say dare to be vulnerable. And there's a great TED Talk by Renee Brown, I think. Renee Brown. I might be mispronouncing her name, but she talks about vulnerability. And I think it's something that is always present in everything I do. I try to be vulnerable and I try to be as confident about what I have to offer to the world, both positive and negative. <laughs> Like, and I need to do it to myself, too. So I think that the advice is really to not let things go, but let things be. Hmm. And that, you know, knowing that things are perfect the way they are, as they are, as they are right now, in this very moment, they're already perfect. How do you, how do you sit in that space as an activist, though? It seems like it... Um it's like magnets backwards, you know, um, that, mm. that advice and activism. Yeah, it does sound like they don't agree, <laughs> those but, two beliefs. But I think that, I don't think I've tried to articulate this before. I've noticed that, that those two things seem oppositional. I think that when we realize that things are perfect as they are, we know that we can, we can try to make change without getting attached to the fruits mm. of our labors, you know? And I think that the reason why we suffer so much is, as humans is because we're so, um, so strapped down by our pasts and so preoccupied and anxious about our futures. And so if we recognize that right now in this moment, as even if shit hits the fan and, you know, I don't have any money or I don't, like my mom's not talking to me or like I just ate a jar of Nutella, like <laughs> I, can, I can just breathe, notice my breath moving through my body and know that it's perfect let it be like just let it be and that the next breath will come and you know then it'll be now again you know so it's just like this 
kind of trippy feeling of it always constantly evolving, but knowing that change is the universal law of nature and that, um, that things are going to be the way that they're meant to be, you know? And so we can put ourselves out there and try our hardest and work really, really passionately about the things that we love and care about, but that the minute we start to latch on to what that might turn into, I think that's when we start to lose the potency. Because, I mean, it's like, okay, you set a goal for yourself, and if you're so attached to that goal, and then you achieve that goal, then you're like, mm, I still don't feel fulfilled. I have to make a bigger goal, and I'm going to be really attached to that outcome. And we see how that um, happens to so many rich people who are like, I want one house. I want a summer house. I now want a jet plane. You know, and I want, like, it's just like never ending. And, and it's good to have goals. It's not, I'm not saying that, it's, that we need to stop having goals, but I think we need to question what those goals are for and like how attached we are to them. to hear from people who are moved by my art and work. It motivates me, it nourishes me, um, and I love hearing from people. And so 
if anyone out there is moved or is challenged or wants to challenge me lovingly, <laughs> then I'd say please email me and get in touch. And I love collaborating with people. I like writing poetry with folks. And yeah, I want to make connections and, and that I think my work wouldn't exist if it weren't for the people that I've met in my life. I've been very, very fortunate in the people I've met in my life. So yeah, like do reach out. <laughs>